So a month or two back now, I had this really interesting conversation with Greg here. And look, he's front and centre, so it's kind of like we can have it again. Um, because I'm going to share with you a little bit of what we talked about that day. So it started right back, way, way back at the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and he pulled light from darkness, and he placed the stars in the sky. He brought forth land from water and inspired living plants and animals to grow and to flourish here on earth. And he also created human beings, and he breathed his very own breath into them, and they became living and active beings. And these were the characters that we learned of at the very beginning. There was God, there was Adam and Eve, the humans whom he'd created. We are told the Spirit of God hovered above the waters, and the living Word of God who was there at the beginning. But then in chapter 3 of Genesis, the, that captures the story of the beginning, we're introduced to another character, and that is the serpent. The sneaky, slithering little serpent who tricked Adam and Eve into eating fruit from the tree that they knew that they weren't supposed to eat. And succumbing to this moment of trickery and temptation, the beginning as they knew it, crumbles down around Adam and Eve, and a new beginning begins. And for anyone reading, at this point, it seems as though they've lost. The story is lost. It seems as though God has lost, and the serpent has won. Adam and Eve's lives will never be the same from this point on. They've waved goodbye to that nice life that they had in the garden, and it's nothing but hard work and pain for them from here on out. This animal, this sneaky, slithering little serpent, slid his way into the story, and we think, we think he's won. And while this might be a surprise to us as we read this story, and while it was probably a surprise to Adam and Eve to have their whole world change in an instant, this plot twist certainly was no surprise to God. Because God sees so much more than we see. And God knows infinitely more than we know. And God knew that serpent, or more accurately, who was in that serpent. He knew that it was Satan, the father of lies, the ruler of darkness, the liar, the tempter, the thief, the murderer. God knew it was Satan, and he knew his heart. He knew that his desire was to become all-powerful, almighty, greater than God himself. So it was no surprise to God that Satan would use his scheming ways, his wicked ways to tempt Adam and Eve, God's created people, down his path of darkness, promising them wisdom and knowledge and godlikeness. And Adam and Eve, they weren't to know necessarily what their actions would achieve. In that moment, they just had to make a choice. Do they trust God or do they trust the snake? And in choosing the snake, it looked like darkness had won. 
and like darkness had sealed the deal. And Adam and Eve began a new beginning, living in a world with a new ruler. And it was as though God had lost control. Following this new beginning, we read story after story of suffering and pain and turmoil and hardship. We read story after story of God's people following these same patterns of turning away from God and turning to other gods. And then we read story after story of God's perseverance God's faithfulness of God pursuing his people and calling them back to himself again and again. He calls them home and he warns them of what might happen if they walk away again. We read story after story of the struggle between light and darkness as God's people choose between the two. But we also read story after story from the prophets declaring God's word that darkness won't reign forever, that light will come, that life will come, and God will redeem his people for once and for all. And after years and years and story after story of darkness and torment, suddenly there bursts forth a new beginning. Through the darkness, the sun begins to rise again. Dawn is breaking, and with the new day comes promises fulfilled. The story changes with the birth of a baby, with the birth of the one called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And for the first time since the garden, God and humanity physically meet and dwell together as God is born in human form, as Jesus, the Word, became flesh. And Jesus grew and he got older and he was baptized and he began his ministry. And in his ministry, he traveled and he prayed and he taught and he healed and he preached and he encouraged and he cared and he served and he saw. And that's the thing about God becoming human It wasn't that God didn't understand humanity or that he didn't know what it was to be human. It wasn't that he'd set himself so far above that he could never relate to us, never connect. It was just that there's something about a physical meeting. There's something about coming kanohi kite kanohi, face to face. And as Jesus ministered, he met people, kanohi, kite, kanohi, face to face. And as Jesus and humanity met, humanity also met with God, kanohi, kite, kanohi, face to face. Humanity experienced God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion. They saw the heart of God, the love of God, the peace of God, and they interacted with God. To their world, which had been ruled by darkness, the light had come. And the light that had come was bringing new life and new hope. But there was still the struggle 
that existed in the world between the light and the darkness. And as Jesus ministered, the darkness lingered, waiting to capture him and his light, waiting to extinguish his light. And come Good Friday, we read these words from Jesus' mouth. It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And as we read that, we can believe that it is finished. The earth was plunged into darkness. The earth shook. The temple curtain was torn in two. And then there was just nothing. And it was his friends who put him there. It was his disciples who'd betrayed him, who'd allowed him to be captured and taken to that cross. And then they just stood by and watched him die as he hung on that cross and breathed his last breath. And then there was just nothing. It seems what had started in the garden had finished. What had started with a choice between light and darkness, between God or a snake, had ended with darkness. It had ended with death. And into the nothingness that came with the next Saturday, God's people cried, where are you, Lord? And then Sunday came. In Acts 2, verses 22 to 31, Peter announces this to those who were gathered there on the day of Pentecost. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself. For he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet. And he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Good Friday didn't mark the end. And the silence of Saturday didn't confirm that things were finished. Because come Sunday, we watched a new beginning begin. On Friday, we thought that darkness had won. On Friday, we thought that darkness could consume the light. We thought that the darkness could extinguish 
the light. But on Sunday, we are reminded that God had it all in hand. God knew what would happen. He had a pre-arranged plan, and it was carried out in the events of Good Friday. His pre-arranged plan was carried out in the events of Jesus' friends betraying him. And his pre-arranged plan was concluded in the resurrection on Sunday. King David had caught a glimpse of this plan and he'd spoken it out many years before. God would not leave the Messiah, leave Jesus to rot in the grave. He would raise him back to life instead because death, because darkness could never hold the light or the life of Jesus in its grip. And so this morning, we're going to take communion now. And as we come to communion this morning, as we come to this table here in the middle, standing on this story, we come to this table carrying the absolute shock and despair that arrived that Friday, when Jesus, the Messiah, was put to death his light seemingly extinguished by the darkness. And then we come to this table also carrying the silence that arrived on Saturday with the cry in our hearts of, where are you, Lord? But we also come to this table carrying the expectation for Sunday with the knowledge that the darkness never can actually win. The darkness never actually won. The darkness couldn't hold Jesus in its grip. And that Sunday was the day that brought true victory as the struggle between light and darkness was ended with the words, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So I invite you to come to this table this morning and consider where are you in this story Do you find yourself in the despair of Friday, in the hopelessness of Saturday? And how does the reminder of the victory of Sunday speak to you in that place? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this table. We thank you that it serves as a reminder to remember your sacrifice. It serves as a reminder of your body broken for us, of your blood spilt for us. And Jesus, as we come to this table, we remember your story, the gospel which started from the very beginning. We remember your story, Jesus. And we ask how you speak to us through that story. Jesus, as we come to this table, would you meet us right where you are, right where we are. In your name, amen. The centrality of this story is kind of the essence of what I spoke about with Greg those weeks ago that the journey to the cross, that the bulk of the actual gospel story is a recount of Jesus' march towards death. With each moment in his ministry, 
he steps closer and closer towards his own death. And in our humanness, we think, why, God, why? Because Jesus is a good guy. He's not supposed to die. It's the baddies who should die. It's the serpent, Satan, the darkness, who should die. But in our humanness, we can't see and we can't comprehend God's godliness. We can't see or know his entire prearranged plan. We can't see or know the hand that he is playing. And God plays his hand well. He plays it deliberately and wisely. As he directs each of Jesus' movements, he draws the darkness in. He allows the darkness to get up close and personal with Jesus. Kanohi kite kanohi, face to face. And with his best poker face on, God allows the darkness to have a sniff. He allows the darkness, Satan, the opportunity to think, you know what? I've actually got him this time. This world is mine for the taking. But what Satan doesn't understand is that God isn't playing the game like he is. Because Satan's playing for himself. He's playing for his pride and his ego, for world domination and control. Whereas God plays for his people. God's playing for grace. He's playing for mercy. He's playing for compassion. He's playing to show his people that he's not done with them yet. Not now and not ever. He's playing for hope and peace and life to win. And all he needs to win, all he needs to complete this whole thing is for the darkness to go all in. For the darkness to give all that it's got. For it to lay down its best move, its greatest hand, its everything. And as Satan lays down his hand, the nails are driven into Jesus' hands. And as Satan eyeballs God, Jesus breathes his last breath. And as Satan sits back smugly, Darkness falls, the earth shakes, and the temple curtain is torn in two. Satan's given it everything he's got. But God is the one still holding all his cards. And on Sunday morning, carefully, one by one, God lays down his hand. And the living Jesus calls out to Mary, outside of the tomb where he was supposed to be lying dead. And God eyeballs Satan, and the living Jesus appears in the upper room to his disciples to show them he is alive. And God sits back in his throne, and the living Jesus declares to God's people, my peace be with you. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. God has won. The light has won. The living Jesus, the living Lord, holds the victory. 
Reading on from verse 32 in Acts 2, Peter declares, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the highest place of honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. So let everyone know for certain Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke of, just as is recorded here from the words of King David. Jesus is the Messiah that God promised. Jesus was the prearranged plan that God had mapped out. Jesus was the light that the darkness could never extinguish. And over the past three weeks, we've been looking into this vision statement to grow an intergenerational community and gospel-based church. And today we focus on being a gospel-based church. That's why communion was set up in the middle today. That's why we took communion in the middle of everything today. To represent our center to represent our focus, to represent our basis. Because our church, this body of people, we have nothing to go on if we don't have the gospel. We have no purpose to our gathering if we don't have the gospel because we've got nothing binding us together if we don't have the gospel. The gospel is our beginning. It's what draws each of us in. It's what has lifted each of us out of the darkness. And the gospel message is what sets us on a new path. And the gospel, it is, what's, it is our present. It's what sustains us as we work for God's kingdom. It's what inspires us and gives us hope. It's what calls us to do more and go further and to engage with God deeper. And the gospel is our future. It's what gives us a future. Without the gospel, where would we be going? The gospel gives us purpose and hope and it gives us vision. It spurs us on to run the race and to run it well and to gather as many as we can to run with us along the way. And what does the gospel ask us to do? Taken from Peter's words, so let everyone know for certain Jesus is the Messiah. God's prearranged plan, it didn't revolve around himself. God's prearranged plan wasn't to win himself more power, more fear, and more control. God's prearranged plan was to redeem his people, 
to call his people back to himself and to give them something concrete for them to stand upon. So he gave them the gospel. He played his biggest move. He gave his only son, and that wasn't for himself, but it was for us so that we might have eternal life with him. The gospel is now our basis, and we stand upon those events before God, and when we do, he sees us pure and worthy and loved. And is there anyone who doesn't deserve to know that about themselves? That they can be pure and worthy and loved. Everyone needs that. So we must let everyone know for certain Jesus is the Messiah. Over the past three weeks, we've broken down this vision that we received from God at our pastor and elders retreat earlier this year to grow an intergenerational community and gospel-based church. But when we break it down and then put it back together, it's almost like it fits better backwards. Because we are a gospel-based church, and that is our core. It's what we stand upon. And if we lose our love for the gospel, we lose everything Let the gospel be our beginning in all things. And we are an intergenerational community bound together by the gospel. This church body holds many generations and ages and stages of faith. And that is a beautiful thing. And by engaging with one another... By meeting kanohi kite kanohi, face to face, across generations, what happens? What happens is we grow. We grow vertically this way in our relationship with God. And we grow horizontally too, out this way in number. And in that number of those who are hearing the gospel, those who are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ through our efforts, And the reason why we do this all is because of the gospel. So in the end, it becomes a spiral more so. A continuous, never-ending spiral of gospel-based connection. Because that's the root of what we endeavor to achieve. Gospel-based connection. Everything that we do stems from that root desire to form gospel-based connections with one another within this space and also out there with whoever we meet in our day-to-day. And we look to Jesus himself, to God in human form, as a model of how we can do this. And we follow what Jesus did. So we go out And we must pray, and we must teach about Jesus, and we must heal in his name. And we need to preach the good news and encourage and care for one another, serve one another. And we must ensure that we see one another. Kanohi, kite kanohi, face to face. Just as Jesus sees each of us for who we truly are.
And that is pure and worthy and loved. We are a gospel-based church. Everything that we do, we do it because of the gospel and we do it for the gospel. So we must let everyone know for certain that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel we thank you that it is a story that spans right from the very beginning and it's a story that is not even done yet. Lord God, we are living in your gospel story. We are the part of the story that now gets to take it and run. We are the part of the story that now gets to take this message, this deep assurance that Jesus is Lord to the rest of the world. Lord God, we thank you that you have led us towards one another and that you have led us out to the community as well. We thank you that you have led us in your own way and that way is to not look at ourselves but to look to others, to look to serve them and to love them and to let them know that they are pure and worthy and loved. So God, I pray that as Ham's self, that we would never lose our love for the gospel, that we would never lose our focus from the gospel, that we would always use it to center ourselves. And I pray that we would never stop striving to meet one another face to face. Kanohi, kite kanohi. And Lord, I pray that as we meet face to face, that as we love one another and serve one another and care for one another, Lord, would we see growth? Would we see deepening relationships with you? Would we see more people hearing your good news? And would we see more people joining this place as we strive to share the gospel with all that we meet? Thank you, God, for your gospel story that spans from beginning to end. And thank you that you invite us and entrust us with that message to take out to the people in this place. May you empower us by your Holy Spirit to do just that. In your name, amen.